an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mansell, joined by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and the co-host of Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the horror thriller Knock at the Cabin, starring Dave Bautista and Jonathan Groff. The film's directed and co-written by M. Night Shyamalan. Christy, what did you think of Knock at the Cabin? M. Night Shyamalan is back and I think we often expect entering into his films that there's going to be a twist right? Ever since The Sixth Sense we go into his movies kind of looking for it what's the twist going to be? The twist here is that there is no twist. It's very, <laughs> it's very literal. Um, so as you say it's based on a novel called The Captain at the End of the World. Um, is about a gay couple, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge and they are at a cabin in the woods in Pennsylvania with their little girl played by Kristen Quee. She's this adorable 8 year old girl and uh, it's a very peaceful, idyllic place. But then this very large, gentle giant of a man, played by Dave Bautista, approaches the little girl, whose name is Wen, in the forest and says, I'm here to be your friend and we're here to talk to your family. And he has brought people with him. And they have all seen these visions of the apocalypse, really detailed, specific visions that they all share. And they have come to this house to tell this family The world is going to end unless one of you agrees to die. One of you has to kill the other. Somebody in this family has to die in order for humanity to survive. Right? It's the kind of thing you... And it can't be suicide. Right. It has to be someone killing someone else. You can't kill yourself, and the four people who come to the house can't pick who dies. They have to decide. This couple has to decide. Is this explained what the rationale is for that? No. You just have to go with it. <laughs> okay. That, that's part of the problem is that it's, I, I wonder what they're trying to say with this. You know, it's at first it feels like it's an indictment of crazy doomsday conspiracy theories, QAnon, that kind of thing, because these are all extremely regular day-to-day walk-of-life people. Dave Bautista, who was great in this, his performance is like the best thing about this movie, is a school teacher. They're regular folks, but they've all seen these visions and they've all met on this message board and this place on the planet is where they have to go to speak to this family and they have to make this sacrifice. And it's an intriguing premise, and there's real tension in it for a long time as you wonder, like, what's going to happen here? And one bad thing after another happens. And I think Shyamalan makes a mistake of actually showing it to us. As the threat of the plague and the fire and the brimstone begin to materialize, like, I don't want to see them. I don't need to see them. I think It's even in the ads for the film. Right, right. So it's, it's, I think it, if it's implicit... Like what you don't see quite frequently, I find to be more terrifying. This gets incredibly literal and clunky and actually silly. And increasingly, as you're going toward its climax, you're like, there's just no good place to go here. They've 
they've made us like this family. They're a lovely couple. We see flashbacks to them first getting together and adopting their little girl from China. And like you see what a lovely couple they are, what a lovely family they are. Why them? What is the purpose in punishing them? Why must they sacrifice themselves for this crazy thing that may or may not be real? So there's tension. Um, the little girl is great in it, Kristen Quee. She's lovely, not like a moppity, precocious child actress. She's really very good. Dave Bautista continues to show so much range. You know, he's got such an imposing physical presence, but there's such sensitivity to him, and he he finds real, real nuance in this character's inner conflict. But ultimately, I'm like, what are you trying to say here? So... Very mixed. Knock at the Cabin is rated R. It's in wide release. 80 for Brady, a comedy starring quite the uh, quartet, <laughs> Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, and Sally Field. Tom Brady is an executive producer on their film, uh, and it's about the four women based on a true story who are huge Tom Brady fans and go to the 2017 Super Bowl. Kyle Marvin is the director. The screenwriters are Sarah Haskins and Emily Halpern. Peter. You know, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Sally Field, and Rita Moreno, uh, between them, you know, there, there are so many Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, Tonys uh, in that field that, you you know, just don't they deserve better than this movie? <laughs> uh, you know, they're playing uh, lifelong friends who are enamored with the Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. They live in Boston, and they, uh, via a ticket giveaway, uh, end up attending the uh, 2017 Super Bowl, which was a famous Super Bowl, of course. The Patriots came from way behind to beat the Atlanta Falcons in overtime. Uh, the best thing about the movie is the footage from that game uh, in this. Um, but it's all very strictly formula. You know, they all sorts of, there's a nursing home breakout, uh, there's a hot wings contest, they lose their tickets, but, uh, that, you know, they have to find their way into the stadium, etc. It's all very formulaic. Um, and, you know, it's fun to see these actresses, even in a cruddy movie like this. But, um, you know, they, they're given nothing to play. I mean, Jane Fonda plays a, a, a romance, a, you know, bodice-ripping romance novelist. Uh, Lily Tomlin is a cancer survivor. Uh, Sally Field is a nerdy math professor who keeps emphasizing that, unlike the other ladies, she's not 80, she's 75. Uh, Rita Moreno seems to, her role consists of, of playing someone who's perpetually horny. Um, you know, if, if you had a cast like this... It, it's an indictment of Hollywood. Uh, I mean, not to get serious for a moment. It's an indictment of Hollywood that, that four of the best actresses in the business um, have to do this kind of movie or maybe want to do this kind of movie, but there ought to be better roles for these women. It just doesn't make sense. Tom Brady has a bit role in it at the end, and he's actually not a bad actor. It's a small cameo, so maybe he can add that to his post, uh, post-retirement uh, biz. Uh, and by the way, uh, it, it's not not really based on a true story. There were these women, but they never went to the Super Bowl, and they never met Tom Brady. All right, eighty for Brady, the comedy, Christy. I just can't believe this movie exists. Like, everything about this movie is so bizarre. It's just this weird Frankenstein of, like, it's an infomercial 
for Tom Brady, who is in it and is executive producer in it. And he's Peter. He's terrible. I don't know why you think he's good in this because like he is he all has to do is show up and be himself. And he cannot even do that. He's so stiff. It's really uncomfortable. Um, it's also this heartwarming feel good thing. It's a how these older ladies get their groove back movie. And there's no tension because, as you point out, Peter, it's the famous 28 to three game. We know they come back. It wasn't that long ago. It was like six years ago this just happened it's a very famous comeback um i felt really embarrassed a lot of the time for these women it's really cringe inducing you can see that just from the trailer you can see it from the posters yeah it's just odd the Um, ads are awful the ads are awful it's so cringe inducing and what what is the old adage like would you rather watch these people all having lunch with each other yes over and over again all day but the thing is they're all such pros that they make this way more tolerable than it has any right to be. And quite often the laughs come not from their wacky antics, but from people on the periphery reacting to them, whether it's a security guard or somebody in the parking lot of the stadium. Like, there are some chuckles to be had here and there. But when it tries to be, like, maudlin and heartwarming, it's just, uh, it's worse than the comedy. 80 for Brady is the film. It's in wide release, rated PG-13. Next up is the animation fantasy sword art online progressive Scherzo of Deep Night, the film directed by Ayako Kono. Charles? Well, Sword Art Online is a very popular anime series it's based on a series of light novels that's up to about 20 installments. And the players, kids trapped in the game is almost a subgenre of anime. Uh, personally, this isn't the series isn't one of my favorites. I think there are others that deal with that milieu better. But the film is actually quite interesting, and I liked it better than the series. Uh, your heroine, uh, Asuna and Kirito, are trapped in this game. She's uh, the second second leader, like vice president of one of the big guilds. He's a more of a freebooter kind of player. And the premise is that they're all trapped in this 100-story tower game, and they have to get to the 100th floor to escape. They're also trapped in real life in their, in their roles. And the two of them play very nicely off each other. It's uh, a story about clearing a, a lower floor than the, the TV series is at. The one weakness is there are a couple of sinister behind-the-scene villains who remain underdeveloped, and their little encounters with them are supposed to be climactic, but we don't know who they are. But all in all, it's an entertaining fantasy, and anyone who enjoys this game, or again, this kind of game with a trap, we have to find our way out, uh, kind of series, we'll have a good time with it. We're talking about Sword Art Online Progressive Scherzo of Deep Night. Uh, the film is unrated, and you can see it uh, one of two ways, uh, either in Japanese with English subtitles or an English-dubbed version of the film. Again, it's unrated in wide release. The Blind Man Who Did Not Want to See Titanic uh, is a Finnish comedic drama romance. The film's written and directed by uh, Temu Nikki. Uh, Peter, what did you think of The Blind Man Who Did Not Want to See Titanic? This is a terrific movie. It's, you know, maybe the best new movie I've seen this year so far in this uh, month or so. It, it really, uh, it's, it's so unusual. Um, uh, the, the lead actor, Petri Poikalainen, um, 
is uh, is is blind and also has uh, MS, and um, he uh, he lives alone. He has a, a healthcare assistant uh, who comes in, who he uh, sardonically refers to as Annie Wilkes, you know, from Misery, and uh, his father calls him occasionally. But basically, um, he has a very restricted life, uh, except that he has this girlfriend uh, that he met through an online dating match. They've never met in person, um, named Sirpa, uh, played by uh, Marjana uh, uh, Nejala. Uh, who um, we never see uh, except at, uh, at the end, but but we don't. Um, uh, but they've never met, but they they have a very strong relationship. And then when her health uh, takes a bad turn, he decides that he wants to go out and visit her, um, which he's never done before, and it's very difficult for him to negotiate his life outside of his apartment uh, for obvious reasons. But uh, he's valiant and he wants to do this. Um, the film is shot. Um, in shallow focus, so that we are almost always on uh, the the face of the actor, um, with everything blurred around it, which is a reasonable way to uh, uh, convey his his blindness and his uh, helplessness. Um, but what's amazing about this movie is is first of all, the actor actually is blind and has MS. Um, he and the director were were friends years ago, um, uh, but the actor was not blind from birth. Uh, but um, he did some acting. Uh, he was chosen because they were friends and because he had been a good actor, and he's an extraordinary actor in this film. He has all sorts of nuances to his performance. He's not a victim. He's not a martyr. He's, he's funny. He's, he's, he's compassionate. He's witty. You know, everything that, that you would expect of someone who, who is really trying to live his life in the best way possible. Um, it takes a turn about halfway through that I, I can't divulge because it's sort of a spoiler alert thing, but it turns into um, a kind of a thriller. Uh, so it's it's not strictly a comedy, except that the actor is is, is so adept at at you know bringing out the, uh, the 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 joy that this man has even in being outside, despite all of the uh, travails that he has to put up with, um, that it uh, it really uh, it's it's a full scale performance and a terrific movie. Um, I, I hope people make an effort to see this because it's certainly not the sort of film that that uh, would normally attract uh, large audiences. Um, you know, and and the title comes from the fact that he loves early John. Uh, uh, you know, he, he he likes John Carpenter movies especially. He loves pre-90s John Carpenter action movies and James Cameron before Titanic. <laughs> okay. uh, <laughs> so right. I mean, it's 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 a very funny, scary, terrific movie in every way. All right. The Blind Man Who Did Not Want to See Titanic is the film. It's written and directed by Teemu Nikki. Uh, the film is at the Regal Sherman Oaks Galleria and is unrated in Finnish with English subtitles. want to remind you to come join us uh, for our Film Week Academy Awards preview. The 21st annual edition is at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. All of our critics will be up on stage. It's going to be a terrific afternoon. We'll show clips of the Oscar-nominated films and even take a vote for the major categories that we cover to see which ones our audience members think should be honored by the Academy. It's Sunday afternoon, March 5th, Historic Orpheum Theater downtown. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. We'll see you there.
It's Film Week on KPCC. Larry Mantle joined by critics Charles Solomon, Peter Rayner, and Christy Lemire. Christy's now going to tell us about a sports documentary that starts on Netflix next Wednesday, Bill Russell, legend. Of course, we lost Russell not that long ago, not only an icon for his incredible years with the Celtics and all those championships at the expense of our Lakers, but (laughs) um, a huge figure in sports and society after his playing career was over. Christy, what do you think of the doc? It's so good, even if you are a Lakers fan like I am. Um, Painful to watch those parts of it, I'm sure. Right, and my husband's a Celtics fan, and I watched this with him, and that was painful too. But um, it gets his arms around a lot because, as you say, beyond being a really important NBA figure for many years, he was also a a pioneering and really like pivotal figure in the civil rights fight. Um, And this addresses all of that. And it's a two-part thing, and Corey Stoll narrates it, and he brings a real richness and, and a real gravitas, you know, the, the, which you expect from you know, this kind of big sports documentary. But then Jeffrey Wright narrates portions of Russell's books and brings like a, a lively wisdom and an earthiness, which is an interesting contrast. So many great interviews, including with Russell himself that has the the last interview with Bill Russell before he died. A ton of stuff from Bob Cousy, like in his 90s and super perky and and really spry. Um, Shaq, Steph Curry, um, Bird and Magic talk about um, how important he was. Jerry West is in this. Um, And then there's a ton of archival footage and stories about his rise um, through college and the Olympics and the NBA and, and how how important he was to that Celtics team and how pioneering in a city that, you know, is supposedly very liberal and very educated and wasn't always all that kind to, to Bill Russell as a black man on that court. But also how Red Auerbach, you know, took chances in like putting a starting five of all black players at one point, which had never been done before. Um, a lot about his friendship and rivalry with Wilt Chamberlain. That's very rich. But then all kinds of stories about, you know, him trying to buy a nicer house in this town that he lived in outside of Boston. And this town had just feted him as like, a wonderful neighbor and friend and family man, but then when he wanted to move to a nicer part of town, there was an actual petition to keep him out. Like, uh uh-uh, we don't want to live next door to us. And so just to see, like, how courageous he was in dealing with the racism he had to deal with every single day in the 50s, in the 60s in America, um, it just, it's pretty standard in its structure. It's not really doing anything to to reinvent the documentary structure, but it's really rich and really entertaining and enlightening. And so much to cover. Player coach for the Celtics following... Uh, you know, Auerbach's tenure as the coach. And then uh, he was the sports talk show host here in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I remember that cackle of a laugh. We'd yes. say something you thought was funny and had a great cackle on on air when he, he did that there's, as well. Yeah, there's a whole great little segment in the movie where, like, various players do his cackle and, like, reminisce fondly about what that meant to hear that cackle. <laughs> Bill Russell, legend. The sports documentary starts streaming on Netflix. Two-part documentary next Wednesday, February 8th. It's rated TVMA. The Civil Dead, a, col- a comedy directed by and co-written by Clay Tatum, who also stars in the film. Peter, what'd you think of The Civil Dead? This is a sweet little movie and, and surprisingly touching um, uh, Clay Tatum plays a, uh, a, a sort of a grumpy, geeky, uh, out-of-work photographer with a mullet hairdo, 
uh, his uh, his girlfriend uh, Whitney, played by Whitney Weir, is a successful artist, and she goes away for a week. They live in L.A. Um, and she encourages him to sort of do something with his life except sit on the couch and drink beer. So he wanders around and takes photos and uh, encounters uh, an old friend of his, um, uh, played by Whitmer Thomas, um, who it turns out is a ghost, but uh, only uh, play can see him. Uh, And for a while that leads to some interesting comedic developments, you know, uh, Clay is in a poker game, and, and um, uh, Whitmer is able to, you know, go around and see what everybody else's hand is, and he makes money uh, with that and so forth. So it's, you know, there's a certain amount of um, of stuff like that, but, but what really struck me was that what it turns into is that um, once Clay gets over the idea that that his friend is a ghost. Uh, he, he was never that friendly with this guy, but this but apparently uh, this is the only friend uh, that Whitmer has um, in this world or in any other world, and he won't leave uh, Clay uh, alone. And he he desperately wants to be friends because he's lonely. And it sort of turns into a movie about how you know what do you do when you have a friend that you're not really that friendly with anymore, and you sort of don't want to hurt their feelings, but you don't want to really get involved and. And so it, it it becomes a rather touching movie about a, a you know a, a non-bromance bromance, um, uh, supernatural but also very real. It's a touching film. Well done. It was the uh, audience award winner at Slamdance uh, last year. All right, The Civil Dead, the comedy from Clay Tatum, with stars directed and co-wrote it with Whitmer Thomas. It's unrated, and it's at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles, and will be available starting February seventeenth uh, for watching on demand. The documentary Facing the Laughter, Minnie Pearl, uh, tells us about the comedian who uh, was often a part of the bill at country music performances, Grand Ole Opry, places like that. Uh, The documentary directed by Barbara J. Hall. Charles. Ordinarily, to get me to watch something about the Grand Ole Opry, you would have to hold a gun to my cat. Uh, But I remember seeing Minnie Pearl as a little boy on TV, on the guest spots on shows, and she was always funny, and this is a very interesting film. I did not know that she wanted to be a dramatic actress. She says at one point, I wanted to be Katherine Hepburn, but that wasn't in the cards, and she discovered she had a gift for comedy and used it. And uh, everybody I've ever heard of in country music, and a number of people I haven't, uh, talk about her, how uh, important she was, Uh, A sentence I never thought I'd say, Dwight Yoakam is actually very touching when he talks about how kind she was to him and how much her support meant to him uh, in some bad times. Um, The film has two weak spots. The first is that although she was the first woman to be in the grand, uh, female comedian to be in the Grand Old Opry radio show, they talk about her as if she were the only a uh, woman doing comedy on radio. And she started in 1940. I mean, Gracie Allen and Eve Arden and et cetera, et cetera. You know, that it, it, it's, it just leaves you thinking, well, didn't they, they really check this? And why didn't they sort of balance what she was doing with, say, Phyllis Diller or Joan Rivers or Elaine May or other women who were pioneers of comedy in, you know, the, the, the mass media? There's also an odd moment where they say that she was paid to appear at rallies for George Wallace, 
but they just kind of tuck that in and notice that she was paid, but they really don't talk about that, which is kind of a big skeleton to have in your closet. And they really don't talk about her politics at, at all. She was apparently a very generous woman. She endowed a cancer hospital, which I didn't know about. Uh, but it, it could have been a stronger film easily, I think. We're talking about the documentary Facing the Laughter, Minnie Pearl, from director Barbara J. Hall. The movie's unrated, and on Monday it'll be at select AMC and Regal Theaters, Facing the Laughter. The uh, Israeli comedic drama Let It Be Morning is written and directed by Irin Kolarine. It's based on a novel of the same name which came out in 2005. Peter, please tell us about Let It Be Morning. Uh, yes, this is a, a, a fine movie. It's a, about a, a Palestinian-born uh, Israeli citizen who lives in Jerusalem with his wife, uh, Sami, played by uh, Alex uh, Bikri, a uh, terrific actor. Um, he goes back to his um, remote village uh, in Israel, um, an Arab village, uh, for his brother's wedding, um, and uh, at which point there is a, um, uh, a lockdown of the entire uh, community uh, by the Israeli forces, and no one can leave. And at a certain point, the electricity is turned off, and, and you know it's just a very difficult uh, situation all of a sudden for this community. Um, it's... Uh, it's really a character study as much as anything else. It's it's politicized, of course, because of the nature of the subject. Um, but uh, mostly, it's about how these uh, people cope with with this, with all these restrictions and all of the, the things that come out. You know, Sammy is uh, doesn't really want to be there. He's he's sort of feels that he's above these people now, and he doesn't really uh, connect with his old friends and his old way of life. And 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 yet he's he's thrust back into that. He has a mistress in Jerusalem that he's uh, interested in getting back to, uh, a young son. Um, there's a lot of things going on in this movie uh, that, that I think you know, have a lot of emotional cross-currents. The best thing is the, the actress playing his wife, Juna Suleiman, uh, is absolutely extraordinary. And, and really, whenever she's on film, uh, it, it really, the screen really you know, trembles with life because she's, she's one of these actresses that just radiates in yeah. different uh, emotions. Let it be morning, Israeli film Christie. I really appreciated the um, the understated, absurdist humor. It's a movie that manages to mine a whole lot of tension from nothing happening because they're just stuck. And the longer that they're stuck, the more suspenseful that becomes. And it's it's interesting because the Sami, the main character here, is not a good guy, as, as Peter suggested. And uh, we know that he knows that he acknowledges that, and yet like we find ourselves hoping that he and his family will get out, um, especially as day by day goes by and uh, it becomes clear that they are not going to. There's a great image right off the top. The first thing we see is at this wedding, this cage is being brought in of all these doves that are supposed to be released, this majestic moment at the ceremony, and they just sit there. Like, they won't even, like, walk out. They have to be, like, pushed to get out of the cage. And it's a great sort of visual metaphor yeah. for what's gonna, about to happen throughout the entirety of the film. Um, yes, he's right. Juna Suleiman is excellent in this. She's, like, sexy and vibrant and earthy, and there's a great directness that makes her very accessible. So she's, she's very good. The film is Let It Be Morning from Israel. It's unrated. Uh, the film is at Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. The mystery thriller Baby Ruby is written and directed by Bess Wall. Christy. 
This is sort of a horror movie about postpartum depression, and there's a great deal of emotional truth in this. You can look at it as a dark comedy, as a thriller, as a horror movie, as a psychological study, but it gets to a lot of truth about how confused you feel when you are a new mom. Noemi Merlant stars as this lifestyle blogger. She's French. She's chic. Everything looks perfect on her website. The cake, the flowers, like she's been documenting her whole pregnancy, and then the baby comes. And it's not perfect. And the baby cries all the time. And her name is Ruby. Kit Harrington's her husband. He's kind of useless. Doesn't really know how to handle anything. And increasingly, you don't know what is really happening in her life and what is her paranoia, what is just a figment of her imagination because she's overtired and she can't sleep. Um, there's a whole mom group in her idyllic neighborhood and they're all really happy and they're back in shape and Meredith Hagner is the main one of them. Anyway, it just it gets to a lot with um, a lot of dark humor and a lot of truth. The film is Baby Ruby. It's unrated in select theaters and available for on-demand viewing. And briefly, let's uh, find out about the British animated uh, comedy adventure The Amazing Maurice from director Toby Genkel and Florian Westerman. Charles. Uh, the second film about a cat dealing with debt, death and his nine lives in the last couple of months. It's apparently based on a popular children's book that I will confess I have not read. The film did not do a lot for me. There is uh, a piper named Keith who runs a scam with some rats. They go into a town. Oh, you've got rats. Pay us. We'll get rid of them. And then he leads the rats back out and they go to the next town. But then they come to a very sinister town where something else is going on. Uh, there's a very, very talky girl named Militia who keeps trying to turn it into, well, in this kind of story, this always happens. She looks a lot like Mavis in the Hotel Transylvania movies, but there just isn't a lot here. The film's The Amazing Maurice, rated PG. It's in wide release. And, Peter, can you give us a quick 30 seconds on the Santa Barbara International Film Festival? Yeah, well, it opens uh, Wednesday for 10 days, and uh, there are a lot of tributes. Angela Bassett, Kate Blanchett, Jamie Lee Curtis, Brendan Fraser, and many others. Um, there's panels. Our own Claudia Puig is heavily involved with the festival, of course. Yeah. Um, some uh, Victor Nunez, a wonderful director, has a film called Rachel Hendricks. Uh, there's a, a documentary on Werner Herzog, also a documentary on um, Jane Campion, a film on T.S. Eliot's Four Quarters, a, another documentary, uh, Dumbo Coalition by Barbara Koppel, uh, a film about um, Argentinian forensic autopsy team that's a pretty amazing, called El Equipo, uh, a Polish film, Philip, uh, another movie, Manuela, has been well recommended. Uh, it, uh, there's a film about black surfers called Wade in the Water, another one about Cuban surfers called Havana Libre. <laughs> Perfect for Santa Barbara Film Festival. Yeah. All right, Peter, thanks very much. Santa Barbara International Film Festival starts the middle of next week. Coming up, I'll be talking with the former executive director of the Motion Picture Academy about the history of the Academy. That's when we come back right here on Film Week.
It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Bruce Davis spent 30 years of his professional life at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Over 20 years, he served as the executive director of the organization. Obviously, dramatic changes over that period of time. But he realized that he actually didn't know much of the history of his own organization. So after he retired about a decade ago, he went to work researching through the Academy's own archives, as well as the voluminous media, uh, minutes of the board meetings of the Academy, to really understand what the organization was like in those earliest years. He's written the uh, book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Bruce Davis, great to have you with us on Film Week. Well, thanks. Great to be here. So share with us um, why this history of the Academy was so little known. Why were the boxes, you know, tucked away where historians, for the most part, didn't have access to them? Yeah, it was it was kind of surprising. Um, I was a little embarrassed as late as the time when I retired about how little I knew about the formation. And I knew that over the years, talking to members, members themselves didn't pretend to have much of any idea of, of how things started. There were, there were uh, some of them had a vague uh, idea that Louis B. Mayer had brought it about as a defense against the um, the burgeoning uh, labor uh, issue, labor movement coming across the country. Um, but beyond that, uh, none of us um, had any idea of, of the complexity of the formation uh, or the nature of the uh, organization in its earliest years and how, how this business of giving out splendid prizes came yeah. about and uh, whatnot. So um, as soon as I um, took my mantle off and uh, got into retired gear, um, I— I, I realized that uh, there were there were a lot of things about this organization that that uh, I myself had never really explored, and some myths that you uh, are able to debunk here. Let's start with with the formation of it. So, who did you find really was most responsible for the creation of the academy? Well, there's no question that Louis B. Mayer was right in the thick of it, and he, whatever his motives may really have been, um, he he uh, he. He, he was he was a founding figure, no question. But as I as I started looking at the early committee reports and uh, uh, the, the the incentives to get all these filmmakers together, um, I realized that a a guy named uh, Frank Woods uh, might be more accurately called the father of the Academy. Certainly, the father of the Academy Awards, because that was an idea that uh, he. He got excited about, uh, not instantly, but uh, about a year in, um, and he said, this this would be good for our art form. This would be um, a way of telling the public what we who make the movies feel is the best work we've done in the course of a year. And um, you'd think, well, that's a natural. That They grabbed that and ran with it, but they did not. They, everybody thought it was a dumb idea. Who'd <laughs> be interested in awards for movies? Yeah, right. And, and well, the, the, real, the real cynicism was that everybody, you know, it was, 
it was a a, um, a small nest of these corporations that each had their own teams, and everybody thought that uh, they were all going to vote for the MGM guys would vote for MGM yeah. films, and the Fox guys would vote for. So it ended up being a meaningless exercise. Absolutely meaningless. Yes, and um, and you could understand. Um, the idea that they might want to vote for their own team, and there's even a self-interest of keeping uh, keeping things profitable at the box office. So um, he he had to kind of persuade people very gradually um, that it was worth trying anyway, that the public would be interested in the opinions of the of the. I, I was going to say the nation's filmmakers, and it was pretty much an American organization uh, for the first few years. Um, and there were still significant studios in New York at the in the early years, right? It wasn't all here. Well, the 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 uh, the the main executives tended to be in New York, and um, the but they they weren't making many movies in New York except in the very very uh, early period. Um, uh, Bruce, let's let's talk about the name Oscar. Where that came from? What did you find in your research? Well, it I, it's a longer story than you probably want here, but it's it's something that people have speculated about for years, yeah. and it was it was one of my incentives for writing the book. I thought every year at Oscar time, you see all these different stories in the magazines and on TV about where the name came from, and uh, there are three major theories, three major claimants to the, uh, to the honor of having, um, having given him the nickname, and nobody really knows. All of those stories end with saying, but, but the Academy says they're not really sure, so I thought, we can do better than that. And I think I came up with a, a candidate that no one had identified and that I'm—, I'm uh, I'm I'm willing to bet really was the person who did it. I can certainly disprove the um the claims of the three major claimants, one of whom is Betty Davis, uh who for years claimed that uh when she won her first Oscar, uh she was at the podium and she turned it around and studied his backside and decided that it looked very much like the backside of her husband at the time, <laughs> whose middle name was Oscar, in fact. But she never really—nobody called him Oscar. They called him Ham, which wouldn't have been a good name for an, <laughs> for an acting award. Uh, but she finally uh, kind of grumpily conceded late in, late in her life in a book that— uh, that, okay. So she, what? So what is the story, Bruce? What, what's the origin? Well, the origin is that um, in the offices, uh, one of the one of the secretaries uh, in the in the late twenties, when they first started giving these prizes out, it was her job every year to round up the year's uh, cast of Oscars and make sure they all arrived at the building where the ceremonies was. And uh, that they had enough and they were in perfect shape and that kind of thing. And in the process of handling them, her own story, which her brother wrote down and I discovered up near Big Bear in a funny little museum up there, uh, uh, she got tired of calling them whatchamacallits or whosits or those thingies. And uh, one day she just decided to call it Oscar. And... 
nobody knew why she called it yeah. Oscar, but they thought the other her colleagues in the office thought that was amusing. And evidently it got out to maybe governors of the academy, but uh, little by little. Uh, it became formalized. Be, it became a nickname. Yeah, but not by the, the academy was was a little shocked by it. That seemed a little frivolous and uh, uh, did not use it um, itself uh, until 1939. This this was a gap of 10 years or so between the appellation and the and the acceptance of it by the Academy. But um, eventually they thought that's a good thing. People like calling it Oscar. We're talking with Bruce Davis, who's the former executive director of the Motion Picture Academy. Uh, He's been retired for more than a decade, and during that time a very busy man uh, studying the history of the Academy. And his book is The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, We need to break in, in a minute, but there are a number of, of different things that you debunk just real quickly. The time that Betty Davis um, was was r- running the show uh, was not as tumultuous as claimed. Right. And I, I'm not sure that many people in the public are even aware that that claim existed. But yeah, there was kind of a, among film scholars, there was a, a legend that, that her term as president of the Academy had been uh, a kind of a hostile uh, incursion and um, uh, that she quit yeah. in a huff. Uh, and it's true that she was only president for 50 days, but she had a pretty good excuse. Uh, during those 50 days, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and America changed and uh, she thought maybe there are more important things for me to be doing in wartime here. As many actors, of course, did, helping the U.S. uh, in Allied war effort. Bruce Davis, author of the Academy and the Award, back in one minute. It's Film Week on KPCC. Larry Mantle with the former director of the Motion Picture Academy, Bruce Davis. He retired in 2011. Since that time, has been uh, deep in the archives of the uh, Eric Library of the Academy, as well as going through the detailed minutes of the meeting to determine uh, some of the most important historical points of the Academy's history. The book that's resulted is The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar, and The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Bruce, from the beginning, beyond the Oscars, was there a sense that there should be um, an educational, academic aspect of the Academy, that films were an art form that needed to be nurtured? Yes, absolutely. And and I think that was really, whatever Louis B. Mayer's uh, hopes and dreams were, I I think when, when they began recruiting artists, film artists for the organization, it turned out that what they cared about was kind of uh, legitimizing the art form that they worked in. Most people, even though the the movies were uh, extremely popular in the silent period of the teens and the early 20s, um, people just thought of it as a kind of a, a fun thing to do. And the people who were making those movies thought, "No, damn it, we're this is an art form, and we are we are creating major art, and I think we can educate the public about how that works and which of our works are 
uh, are worthy of serious attention and which are just kind of silly, fun things. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a driving force, and um, and and it it was a driving force behind the uh, the establishment of the Academy Awards. When this started to become uh, really big business around the Oscars and the studios looking for nominations and awards to boost box office and the like, and you got the big campaigns for the Oscars, how did that change the organization if it did? I'm not sure it changed the organization. Um, it, it certainly changed the 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 public attention to the awards because you did begin to get um, these very unfor- unfortunate uh, campaigns, which got more and more uh, extensive, particularly if you lived here in in uh, in Los Angeles. Um, the the Academy's preference up till today still would be that the nobody ever took out an ad for the Academy Awards that you made the you made the uh, the films of a given year uh, as 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 available as possible to the people who were going to be doing the voting and you just let them decide and to, and you know you don't go to a big room and everybody raises their hand for this one or something it's a very private um, act voting for the Academy Awards. And they would prefer that it stayed that way. But, of course, there's, it's very hard to legislate. It's hard to make up rules that will prevent people from buying advertising, from throwing elaborate dinners where you come to see the movie, that kind of thing. It Because um, you can always find ways around the rules, creative ways to circumvent them. That's exactly the problem. And I, I, it, it, by coincidence, uh, there was a meeting, I think, last night of the Board of Governors uh thinking about is there a way now because there's there's been some controversy about this year's yeah one nominations. of the best actress nominees yeah. and uh you know could could that have been handled differently should there have been some intervention by the uh, academy if they became aware that that was going on um it's tricky and it it crops up every 10 or 20 years somebody steps over a line and then the organization pulls back and defines that line um, and maybe it's time to do that again. We're talking with Bruce Davis, the former executive director of the Motion Picture Academy. His new book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and, and Sciences. You left in 2011, and less than a year later, the L.A. Times and our John Horn, who was part of a team of reporters at the time, did their big series, Unmasking Oscar, and, and pointing that Academy voters were overwhelmingly white and male. And the, the numbers were, were pretty shocking, a median age of 62. And uh, as you look at, at, you know, the reporting of that, first, what was your reaction when, when you saw the Times do that? Well, well, it wasn't a big surprise to me. I'd been meeting with the members of the Academy for a long time, and, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't surprised because I knew that to— to attain the eminence within a given field, whether you're a sound person or a cinematographer or whatever, you're not going to achieve that in your 20s. I mean, it's not something that just comes with the first crack out of the box. And you have to do it several times to qualify for Academy membership. Now, an exception would be maybe actors who 
do uh, have great roles in their 20s, and uh, they come in as, as fairly young members. But um, in, in most of the branches of the academy, it, it takes some time and a number of you have to have a you have to have a body of work. So you're going to be in your 30s or 40s or something at, at a minimum. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that the organization uh, skewed middle aged or or higher. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed to be a great shock to many people. Gosh, these aren't kids uh, making these decisions about the Oscars. Um, so uh, I, I thought, frankly, that the Academy could have could have handled it better uh, in terms of explaining what the process is of becoming um, eligible for the organization. But um, in any case, they set to it and they began um, approaching membership with more of an eye to uh, diversity and to and uh, youth and, and age. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what do you think about that, taking people who are not as late in their careers and inviting them to join the academy uh, in an effort to diversify age, race, ethnicity, and gender? Do you think this is a positive step? Yes and no. Um, you don't want it to become uh, – the, the fear at the time of that uh, time series was that uh, it was it was more – uh, it was geriatric now, and it was going to get more geriatric. And if you only if you only picked the people for membership who, in effect, had been standing in line waiting for 30 years, then, of course, that was going to happen. So just the very attention, the, the focusing of attention on the uh, membership decisions every year, I think, helped um, allay fears that the organization was spiraling into old age. But um, uh, if you if you start if you start committing uh, to if if you're starting to look at diversity alone rather than artistry, uh, then then you're going to get into other kinds of problems. Well, I think the thought is that you know there were all these people who'd had impressive careers who hadn't been invited, who might have been younger, and and that the the films that people are seeing have. More diverse casts today uh, are aimed at a younger audience, and that now having a somewhat younger academy and a somewhat more diverse academy better reflects the films that are being made and the audiences that are paying money to, you know, to go to these films. Sure, yeah. We're talking with Bruce Davis, the uh, Academy and the Award, the Coming of Age of Oscar, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us, talking about all the work you put into the history of the Academy. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Nice to be here. Have a great weekend from all of us at Film Week. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.